Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we've got Andrew Asipov back again, another one of my undergraduates from Cambridge who recently finished up his degree. And we're going to be talking about the French Revolution, and especially on the concept of representation which develops out of the French Revolution, and especially out of the work of Siez. So, Andrew, I know you really love this topic. Tell us a little bit about what gets you excited about this topic and some of the stuff that you noticed as you were reading about it. Thank you, Ben. Yeah. Um, I mean, probably a bit of a cliche to say this, but the French Revolution topic at Cambridge was one of the largest, um, I think, on the reading list and one of the largest I, I ever did in the History of Political Thought course, and mainly because there's just so much in it. And I mean, if people look to the French Revolution simply through a historical lens, it's very easy to get bogged down in all the different events and um, things that happen in terms of power grabs, switchings of power, the all the political events on the sort of on the forefront. Um, what people often don't notice and don't look at is the underlying political thought, theory, and ideas that are pushing these, these things forward um, on a much deeper level than simply you know the classic liberty, fraternity, uh, and so on, and equality, and so. Starting with C.A., um, who is, I guess you could say, the primary revolutionary thinker and, of course, the first one, uh, the first guy who primarily influences a lot of events um, when things are first sort of rolling and starting to, to get going in the French Revolution. Um, it then evolves into several other political factions, all of which um, base their understanding of the revolution on parts of Rousseau. Um, but also on their own interpretations and their own actions, which are in part politically motivated based on their want to maintain and negotiate and develop their own power in the revolution. And so it's a, it's a very big mess, um, <laughs> essentially, and that's why it's so interesting to navigate. Um, but it's also very important to navigate it through the lens of representation, because that is ultimately what the French Revolution is about. It's about the um the fall of hereditary power um and the rise of this new sort of liberal representation which is interpreted by the different actors in the french revolution in different ways which of course creates the conflicts that then happen so yeah where where do where do you want to start <laughs> yeah so i think this point you you make is important there's a lot of drawing on jean-jacques rousseau because of jean-jacques rousseau's emphasis on the importance of equality. But Rousseau was a direct Democrat. Rousseau did not think that democracy was compatible with representation and therefore called for sortition. Yeah. Right? So when Sieyes tries to adapt Rousseau, he has to try to come up with a way to scale Rousseau up. Rousseau, of course, was from Geneva. He was from a city. His theory is really a theory for a particular city, a particular small state. It's not a theory that is easy to apply to a large state like France. So when Sieyes is trying to 
reconfigure it. He has to find a way to scale it up. How does CAs scale it up? Yeah. So what what CAs realizes, um, what essentially happens is that um, when the king first calls together um, the states general, it's because there's a debt crisis in France. Um, and the king needs the consent uh, of the states general to essentially um, be able to raise more taxes. And everything assumes, everyone kind of assumes around around the king that it's going to be fine. But of course it's not, um, because CA uh, and a couple of other intellectuals at this time decided they can use this as a way to potentially um, assert um, more power and undermine the hereditary principles um, because of several problems that they see with the way that it works. and. That, that's a very like short summary of that. But what CA wants to do is essentially to use the available institutions of the third estate to form the first representative assembly um, and to form this new political system, um, which will help to sort of adapt Rousseau's small state to France's large size. Because, of course, logistically, it's not really possible to gather everyone in one place, have them decide and deliberate on political um, things. And so he wants the people to essentially all be one estate. So whereas France previously before the system has three estates, um, the nobility, the clergy, and everyone else pretty much, uh, also known as the third estate, um, CA essentially declares that the third estate is the nation um, because they're, they're the ones that are doing all the work. They're the ones putting in all the labor. They're the ones contributing the most to society, whereas the other two, Estates aren't really doing much. Um, this is also because, of course, the of the absolutism that has taken place, which we discussed in the episode on Montesquieu, where gradually um, the French monarch has accumulated more and more power from the nobility. So at this point, the nobility really isn't really doing much, but yet they're still inheriting um, political roles. They're still inherit. So they still, of course, are in- inheriting all their lands through hereditary means, and so to a lot of people like CA. Um, it seems strange that they have um, a two-to-one ratio uh, in the Estates General. Uh, and so because of that, yeah, CA wants to essentially abolish those um, distinctions and just have the third estate, who will, out of themselves, um, elect representatives who will deliberate on the common will. But of course, the difference um, with Rousseau is that CA acknowledges that this is a representative common will. So he understands that the 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 Rousseauian Commonwealth, if we, if we were to define it as that, is still that which everybody in the nation of France would take part in, everybody in the population. Um, but this representative will is one which is formed by the delegates. So the delegates are elected based on being able to represent the interests of the people, and then they have a little bit of agency to negotiate amongst themselves to find solutions to the common problems that the French nation faces. Of course, this is a bit ambiguous because it's not a direct mandate theory. It's not saying, well, if you are elected, you have to do this. Um, but it is saying that to some extent, they have to remain loyal. And that's where this kind of starts to drift off the rails because CAs does, does leave this little caveat in there that if the representatives do become to do start acting deviantly, do start misrepresenting, as it were, then they can be voted out and replaced. They can be recalled. Uh, by their constituents, and a new representative can be elected who could potentially be more loyal in representing those constituents' interests. Yeah, so to to dig a little bit into this, 
Rousseau has this idea of a general will, and the general will is supposed to be found through a direct democratic process. Now, for reasons to do with scale, as well as reasons to do with discomfort with direct democracy, because direct democracy, of course, means that anybody could be picked, really anybody. And therefore, you could have people picked who don't have property, who are very poor, uh, as long as you consider them to meet some kind of citizenship requirement. In a direct democracy, people can be picked, right? Now, for Rousseau, there's going to be a distribution of land such that everybody at least has got a little bit. So nobody's going to be totally propertyless, but you would have a lot of relatively small scale landowners who could still be in political positions within Rousseau's schema, picked through sortition. Siez is a little bit worried about giving a lot of influence to these people who have uh, no property or very little property. There's a reluctance to do property redistribution to get the kind of property distribution that Rousseau talks about, right? So when we're talking about equality, there's this question of how far do we go with this? Does equality mean that we have to make sure that every male citizen of France has property? That would be, require a lot of redistribution and would be pretty radical. What a lot of theorists instead want to say is that every male citizen of France is entitled to the same status before the law, that there isn't or shouldn't be some set of citizens who, because they are nobles or because they are priests, get special treatment legally. Right? So it's yeah, a kind yeah. of equality before the law on the more conservative end of the spectrum in French revolutionary thought, as opposed to, say, an equal distribution of property. Right? Yeah. And even mm-hmm. on Rousseau's schema, you're not necessarily getting a strictly equal distribution of property. You're just getting a system in which nobody will be completely deprived of property, nobody will be completely propertyless. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. So when we are moving uh, here, part of the motivation here is to prevent this group of people who don't have property from being given political influence. So we want the goal here is for the bourgeois merchants in France to accumulate power for themselves without having to give it to the truly destitute workers, right? And so the language of the third estate allows these very wealthy commoners to kind of conflate their interest with that of the peasants. But of course, because the peasants really don't have the wealth or the education or uh, the cultural capital to be influential, they're not in practice going to be the ones making the decisions, right? And therefore, this representative will is going to be one step removed from the hypothetical general will, which would hypothetically exist if you were really able to involve the entire citizen population in decision-making, right? So the way that Rousseau makes this work is by arguing that the entire nation of France constitutes the assembly, right? But having the power to constitute the assembly, it then doesn't have to exercise the power which the assembly then possesses, right? So once the assembly is constituted, then the assembly can take decisions on its own, right? Without having to have those decisions 
approved by the entire nation, right? So the nation has the ability to adopt a constitution, but then once that constitution is adopted, that constitution can exclude various parts of the citizenry from being part of decisions, right? And in this way, Rousseau has an active-passive distinction between the part of the citizens who are active, who are participating in politics. You mean CA, right? Excuse me, not (laughs) Rousseau. Yes, I mean CAs. Whew, that was bad. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Ciaz has, has got an active-passive distinction between the citizens who are participating in political decisions and the citizens who are not, for various reasons, participating, either because they're women, because they're children, because they don't have enough property, whatever the case may be. Those citizens, while they are theoretically part of the process of choosing the Constitution, because the Constitution can only come into being with their support, uh, they don't actually get to make day-to-day decisions. So you have this gulf opened up between this sort of ideal general will, which would exist in a pure Rousseauian system, and in practice, this representative will, which is estranged and alienated from that general will. And this is a a feature that you have in almost every kind of, of really theoretically persuasive theory of representation. Every theoretically persuasive theory has got to deal with the fact that at the end of the day, you are not going to have every citizen really feeling represented by a representative system of government. You're not going to have every citizen directly participating. And so there's going to be some gulf between what the representative government does and what various particular citizens might want or what might be in the interests of various particular citizens, right? So if you think about, say, Habesian rep- representation, it similarly has a kind of hypothetical aspect to it, right? Because the citizens come together to form the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth is then personated by the sovereign. And because the sovereign is personating the Commonwealth, which the citizens came together to form, the sovereign doesn't have to answer directly to the citizens because the sovereign is personating an abstraction rather than directly representing the wills of particular citizens, right? The sovereign represents the citizens in a kind of triangular structure mediated through the abstraction of the commonwealth. And this makes the sovereign only answerable to the abstraction of the commonwealth and not to any particular subjects, right? And the reason that Hobbes wants that is that Hobbes doesn't want the sovereign to be bound by the subjects who he considers too multitudinous, too diverse, with too many different impulses and interests. So if the sovereign can be bound to represent particular subjects, particular members of the multitude, then the sovereign can be bound in ways which are contradictory and which will ultimately undermine the sovereign's legitimacy, right? So by having the citizens come together to form the commonwealth and then the sovereign personating the commonwealth rather than directly representing the the multitude hobbes avoids the problem of having a sovereign who directly answers to particular people to particular subjects right and that makes the system work on a theoretical level the trouble of course is that actual people tend to be highly dissatisfied by a concept of representation which doesn't actually in any real sense entitle them to challenge what their representative is doing, right? So what is theoretically satisfying for political theorists tends to be deeply dissatisfying from the point of view of real-world legitimation, which is why Hobbes's theory never really succeeded in legitimating sovereigns to the ordinary subjects, right? 
So the way that Siez tries to square this is by having this general will be embodied in the particular constitution which the state adopts. And then once the state has adopted that constitution, that constitution can be carried out by the active citizens who are participating in the political schema, right? Of course, there's always this possibility that the assembly will, while following the constitution in the way that it understands it, not follow the constitution in the way the citizens as a whole understand it. And in this way, you can have the potentiality for some separation between the representative will and the general will. But because you can only find out what the general will is, either through a direct democracy assembly of the whole nation, which is not possible, or by some kind of representative model, the only way that you can establish that the representative will differs from the general is by, once again, having another representative will, which makes the claim that there is a discrepancy that's formed between the general will and the first representative will, right? So if you make multiple assemblies, then those assemblies can all say to each other, no, the other assembly doesn't represent the general will. I'm representing the general will most accurately, most adeptly, right? But of course, to do this is to have multiple different constitutions. And to have multiple different constitutions doesn't make any sense, right? So you're in a situation where the only way that you can really establish that the representative will is out of alignment with the general will is to do things which, of course, the constitution will itself forbid, right? So either you can submit to this constitution as if it were the general will, or if you want to maintain the ability to challenge the representative will by appeal to the general, you're going to have to in some way act in an extra-constitutional, extra-judicial way, right? So the French Revolution kind of sets you up in a nasty situation where either you accept the representative will as basically the general, which the theory itself is suggested cannot possibly be the case, that there will always be some level of discrepancy between the representative and general wills. Or you challenge the representative will by ha appealing outside of the constitutional schema, right? And so this creates this constant conflict over where is the general will really and are particular assemblies actually representing it with no clear mechanism for deciding whether a particular constitution does or doesn't accord with the general will. Does that sound about right to you, Andrew? Yeah, it does. It does. Um, yeah. And of course, I mean, the way CA is, thinks this is going to work is because he has the concept of the constituting power and the constituted power. Um, and so what is supposed to happen is that there's supposed to be a separate constituting power, um, which is an elected body by the nation, which sets up a constitution, a set of rules that are to be followed politically. Then they retire and then a new sort of class or group of representatives is supposed to be elected, which then follows said rules. Um, and if the nation is then unhappy, then there is supposed to be a mechanism which triggers um, a reconstitution of that constitution by a different constituting power. Problem, of course, with the French Revolution is that this never, ever happens. It's written into several constitutions as a mechanism, but it's never executed. I mean, it uh, even from the beginning, when CA is, is recommending 
in ways of the executive means um, to the third estate. And he's basically setting out what he wants them to do. Even that is already kind of a problem because he's treating the third estate as a constituting power. But at the same time, the third estate is basically <clears throat> just the same people who then e execute the constitution that they've defined. Um, there is a very, very brief period where, ironically, uh, Robespierre is the is the person who says that, you know, the representatives should stand down and honor this arrangement. But then uh, in but then in the National uh, Convention, that I, a year or two after that, uh, that pretty much just gets forgotten and they all just get reelected. Um, so the same people end up executing and, and using the political rules which they themselves have established and written, which is exactly uh, what CA doesn't want to happen. And then, of course, they start to amend those rules. So, for example, through the debates over the royal veto, how the king should be able to influence politics, um, the king's role, whether to remove it, whether to execute him, whether to not remove it, um, and constantly making new constitutions. Um, uh, from the Girondin, the Montagnard one, the 18, the 89 one, the 99 one, the 91 one, sorry, and constantly reconstituting itself. It's something that CA definitively sets out in his theory as something which should not happen. The, the constituted power should not have the means to um, edit <laughs> its own its own powers, um, because that for him is corruption. That's exactly what a, what a despotic system would do. Uh, and that is, of course, exactly what happens. Um, but another interesting thing, I mean, you, you brought up the, the issue of equality and in property. And I, I think th there is an argument to be made there that it is the those classes that are attempting to get power. But I think it's also important to remember that a lot of the French Revolution is based on this resentment that has grown towards hereditary power. Um, and I think it, it might be great to bring in Condorcet here um, in his text on despotism, where he's talking about the natural rights of man, um, and which in, in which he includes equality. And he specifically mentions that this is really just um, about political equality and political inequality. Uh, and he emphasizes that there should there is a natural right to the free use of property to accumulate property indefinitely. But what he is opposed to specifically is the unequal distribution that favors the eldest child in the family in hereditary laws. And he also um, is opposed to the idea of conquerors who, you know, many, many generations past in France um, conquered um, lands and, and tribes and groups by force and then established themselves as hereditary lords, monarchs, whatever, um, and created mechanisms of divine right and power just through hereditary um, means of conquest. That's, and and CA is against this as well in, in, his, uh, in his essay on privileges. Um, so I feel it's very important to mention that there is also this very strong um, resentment against this hereditary, um, hereditary um, transfer of property. What, the, what a lot of the French revolutionaries want to do, I feel, is they want each generation to have its own chance of acquiring wealth through competition. Um, and they don't want previous pre-written laws from beyond the grave of previous ancestors to make individuals superior to others simply by way of written law. They don't want unequal advantages to happen without the necessary actions being taken by that specific generation. So that, that, that was on that point. Um, yeah, what, what do you think? Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. That is certainly what they were, what those revolutionary figures were after. Uh, I do, I do want to highlight that when we're talking about equality, similar to representation, 
it's this big abstraction, which can mean a lot of very different things to different people. Yeah, and so yeah. for many different theorists, both during the revolution and in the decades to come after the revolution, this concept of equality is going to be more or less demanding, depending on what it is that those particular people are hoping to get out of that concept. And this is mm. part of what's fraught about the 18th century. There are all of these concepts that are coming up that are making a big splash in political theory, and nobody knows what they mean, and they can mean a lot of very different things. And so when we're talking about what happens with equality, you know, we, we did an episode on equality a little while back, you can start with these relatively small changes that are just about getting rid of noble privileges, getting rid of certain kinds of inheritance laws. Uh, and that can end with a lot of people demanding much more elaborate stuff, like uh, meaningful redistribution of property. Right? In a similar kind of way with representation, you can start with this kind of schema in which you have these mediating structures. And you can end with a situation where people want to be represented in a sense which is impossible in practice to satisfy, right? And I think that uh, you know, when we talk about a legislature which is being accused of having violated its own constitutional mandate, you get this question of, well, how do you deal with a constitution which itself has developed in a manner which makes it deviant from general will? right? How do you prevent this problem? And there are a couple of things you can do. One is, of course, to make it impossible to change the Constitution so that the Constitution reflects one particular utterance of general will at one particular point in time, and no one can ever change it again through the constitu uh, constituted uh, representative will, right? But if you do that, then it's going to be frozen in time. It's not going to be adaptable. And of course, the general will is not something which speaks once and then is forever silent. The general will is meant to be an ongoing thing. So mm -hmm. if you argue that once you have a constitution, it can never be changed and must always remain the same, that's not going to be very flexible or very adaptable. Yeah, that's just hereditary power. That's exactly what they want to avoid. Right. Conversely, if you take it the other direction and allow the general will to to somehow continue to revise the Constitution, it's, there's a big question of how you do that in a way which doesn't blur the distinction between the constituting power and the constituted power, right? Between the assembly that's been constituted and the third estate, which is doing the constituting, right? So <laughs> I, this blurring makes it very difficult. Now, it sounds like an, an idea that is a recipe for disaster in the way that we've been describing it. But I want to emphasize that if you're Ciez, you're going, this is basically what the Americans did, and it seems to be going somewhere for them. What the Americans did is we had a constitutional convention in which the states sent representatives to a convention. Those representatives came up with a constitution, right? And then that constitution created a set of offices, and lots of different people then run for those offices some of whom may have participated in the Constitutional Convention, but many more of which will have not participated, right? And their access to those offices is determined by the rules laid down in the Constitution, right? And in the yep. United States, 
the Constitution has an amendment mechanism baked into the Constitution. So there's a way consistent with the Constitution of amending it and changing it to adapt to new circumstances, right? Now, mm -hmm. a problem arises when if, if we think that the amendment mechanism itself doesn't really represent the general will, or if the amendment mechanism itself has become an obstacle to the general will's expression, right? So one thing you, all of these problems that you might have in general about the constitution, you can have about the amendment mechanism itself. So you can say, well, if we never change the amendment mechanism, if it's always the same, then aren't we being bound by the general will of people in the past? Or if we can change the amendment mechanism in the Constitution, then doesn't that just open up a Pandora's box in which people can demand all sorts of changes on the basis of all sorts of thinly based appeals to the general will, right? So you yeah, can get into yeah. the same kind of problem with the amendment mechanism. Now, in the United States, for the most part, we have managed to avoid this problem. But to a large degree, it's been lucky, right? It's not like there's some obvious theoretical solution to it. And you still hear this debate all the time when in the United States, originalists argue that the Constitution has got to be interpreted just the same as it was when it was first written because anything else is chaos. And on the other side, people arguing that the Constitution, of course, has to be updated, right? And therefore, mm -hmm. of course, needs to be interpreted in, in lieu of current events. Right. And of course, I think in between those two positions is the position that John Paul Stevens expressed in his book, Six Amendments, which is that the way of doing this is principally not through interpretation, but through amending the Constitution to clarify what it means. That's the mechanism which the Constitution laid down. The trouble is that the amendment mechanism to the U.S. Constitution is quite arduous. And in recent decades, it has proven increasingly impossible to use. So, because the amendment mechanism is increasingly impossible to use, the Constitution is being interpreted by a Supreme Court, which is having to make decisions based on interpretive whims because it isn't getting new direction from amendments, right? And to get amendments in the United States, you need a huge number of states to ratify particular amendments. Very difficult, right? The states mm -hmm. could also call a new constitutional convention and write a new constitution. The states have the capacity to do that. But that, again, requires a very large number of states, right? And the divisions in the United States make it difficult, if not impossible, for a coalition of states of that scale to be assembled, right? So mm -hmm. there's a lack of flexibility that's setting in, in in the United States as a result of interpreting this problem in the opposite way from the way in which the French interpreted it. In general, in the United States, as time has gone on, we've defaulted to a more originalist kind of interpretation, whereby we have to be extremely skeptical of any amendment to the Constitution because any change potentially kicks off a process of unraveling. This means that our Constitution is not very fluid, tends to be very static, right? It means it's very it's very straightforward what the Constitution is going to be. You can't have a kind of spiraling violence over what the Constitution is. But this is held up by increasingly dubious interpretations of a document written a long time ago that is too infrequently updated. Right On the French side, the problem is resolved in the opposite way, where eventually 
you have a total breakdown in anybody's ability to recognize the general will embodied by any particular constitutional document. And therefore, every constitutional arrangement that anybody throws up in France is immediately and permanently subject to immense scrutiny. And I think this is a legacy that we see not just during the French Revolution itself, but in ensuing French history. If you look at French history, it's ancient regime, first republic, first empire, restoration, Orleanist monarchy, second republic, second empire, third republic, fourth republic, fifth republic. It's many different regimes, many different constitutions. And the reason for this is that the way the French deal with this problem of what do you, whether or not you can take the constitutional laws really representing the will of the people is by constantly going, maybe it doesn't represent the will of the people. Maybe we need to start over, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And it, it's not as if that perspective was unrepresented in American circles. Thomas Jefferson is famous for that quote about the tree of liberty needing to be watered with the blood of patriots, right? And Thomas Jefferson ended up supporting the Jacobins in France, the only mm. American revolutionary figure who, who easily comes to mind for me who gave any kind of support to the Jacobins. So I think this is kind of the big conundrum that we're left with in the 18th century is this concept of representation. If you take it in a theoretically satisfying way, it's going to be deeply unsatisfying to particular people as a real basis for legitimating the state. The only way to make it satisfying to particular people is to interpret it in a way which is going to cause other big structural long-term problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think part of the problem also is that the, the French revolutionaries take too long to figure out what to do, and there just isn't enough time for one constitution to be sufficiently solidified. So once the first two or three are kind of knocked down, it creates this sort of precedent in history of recent events where people allow that to happen because it's already happened. And I think the reason that happens at the start is because there's so much um, disagreement and confusion between the deputies as to what to do with, with the king. Um, I mean, interestingly, um, CA might be seen as a Republican, but he's he actually doesn't isn't that anti-monarchist as you might expect. He's against hereditary power and he's against the idea of a monarch having that governmental power, but he's not against the idea of having a monarchical or hereditary figure within his constitutional settlement. Um, and he argues with, with Paine about this, because Paine, uh, Thomas Paine, who of course has a very large influence on the American Revolution, which you were just talking about, comes over to France, um, even joins the assembly at one point, and sort of gets involved with everything a little bit. And there's a debate between uh, him and C.A.s, and Paine is essentially um, just bashing the monarchy and saying, well, this is the reason for all the wars and um, pain in the world and suffering. And C.A. says, yeah, okay, fair enough, but hold on a second. There's something that we should not lose here. We should not lose the executive decision, which, of course, in a way can be interpreted as him wanting some sort of presidential figure, um, like in the, in the American system. Um, but, of course, what he wants to do is he wants to adapt the French monarch to have this role. Um, and that's why he wants um, the king's sort of ministers to still have some governmental power and the king to have a veto. So the idea is that um, if the deputies um, do something in the assembly that could be potentially seen as going against the, uh, the general will, the king is supposed to then veto this and let the people re-elect the representatives 
Um, and if the representatives keep doing this and the, the king keeps vetoing it and the, the representatives keep getting re-elected, then I think after two or three cycles, um, they can uh, they can finally uh, change change the law that, that was made. Um, but it's interesting how he tries to, almost in a Montesquieuian way, because in, in his um, ways of the executive means, he does literally say projects should be adapted to their available means, which is very Montesquieuian. And he talks about honor being um, the thing that drives monarchy. So he's, he's clearly read Montesquieu as well. Um, so maybe he's trying to adapt the French institutions to an American model, which of course then doesn't really work because what happens ultimately is around the time when the king is being hesitant about whether to accept this new veto role, we have um, the, the uprising um, on Versailles. Um, where essentially uh, a lot of a lot of women servants, um, mostly people who CAs would classify as the passive distinction, which you mentioned, Ben. Um, so people who don't really have property um, are essentially go go to Versailles and pressure the king to ac- accept the the new constitutional settlement. Um, and this sets a very very dangerous precedent for the revolution. Not because it's morally wrong or anything, but because what happens is essentially the deputies in the assembly are forced to accept that the people can have spontaneous sort of cathartic outbursts of the general will, um, which can then force political events to be cemented um, into the, I guess, constitution, which at this point is is just being adapted all the time. And uh, what happens is we have the Jacobins led by Robespierre taking advantage of this because at that point they're in the minority faction and so what they do is is Robespierre essentially endorses this and says that well you know the deputies that they're forming a conspiracy uh, against the majority of the people and that's why it's only fair that the Parisian mob um, can assert its general will through these cathartic acts of course there's so many problems with this one of all being that Paris does not represent all of France the other being that they're passive citizens, and the, the other being that even if it was one disagreement, that would still need to be, you know, reconstituted and, and voted on in in the nation as a whole. So there, there's so many problems with this, politically speaking, from Cieza's point of view. But that doesn't matter. What matters is that uh, the Jacobins are able to use this um, propagandistically to essentially paint the other representatives who are wanting the king to still have some sort of role in French society and French political society as deviant to the real general will. Um, and this is, of course, exasperated further um, when they then um, later storm the Tuileries Palace and um, Robespierre is again able to use this as, as a way to assert that um, his faction, the Jacobin faction, is the one in the right. Um, and eventually that, of course, leads to the, the king fleeing, being taken back, executed. And the whole thing just kind of flies out the window. And I think because of that ambiguity about what to do with the king, what to do with the monarchy, which isn't really a problem that the Americans have, um, because, of course, the, um, the, the monarch is, is, is in England. It's not really part of the colonies because it's an independence movement rather than a, a revolution, I would say. Um, because of that problem, um, it creates a bunch of constitutions which don't have enough time to be to, to accumulate enough precedent, I would say, and enough time. And that's why after that, it's just, it's just chaos. Yeah. yeah. Another major difference, of course, is that the Americans have a federal system 
And so what is being represented in the United States is not a general will, but particular states. Exactly, yeah. And so because in the United States, whether or not the Constitution represents what it's meant to represent is determined not by an amorphous general will, but by the states concretely, because the states are the concrete units which exist prior to the existence of the Constitution. As long as the states, as the state governments, are willing to go along, can't assemble a sufficient coalition among themselves, or are otherwise intimidated by the feds, it's very difficult to challenge the federal constitution. And of course, there are occasions in American history where states attempt to push this and attempt to challenge the feds, most famously during the American Civil War, but also during the nullification crisis under Andrew Jackson, say. Uh, in these instances, however, they, the states are never able to assemble a sufficiently strong coalition to challenge the feds, including in the American Civil War itself. The states which are trying to rebel against the federal system are never able to build up enough strength together. And because there is no American general will because that isn't a concept which is frequently or heavily invoked, there's no bypassing the state governments in the United States. The state governments are the mediating structures which we're stuck with and stuck in, and they make it very difficult for people to make direct demands on the federal government, right? Yeah, it's not as infused with all these transcendental Rousseauian concepts as the French Revolution is. Right, and in the French case, what you have is a monarchy which you are trying to find a way to gently bring into this. Because once you take the monarchy out, because so much of existing legitimation is built up around the monarchy, you're going to have a little bit of a vacuum. It's going to be very difficult because you've already heavily eroded the social roles of the nobles and the priests. Now, if you remove the monarchy, you're removing the main substantive thing which unifies France, right? So if yeah, you're going to do that, <laughs> what, what is it that you're going to have? Well, you're going to directly appeal to the general will, which is a direct appeal to the amorphous, ever-changing will of the people. That is not going to be a basis for stable government. You need something else to work with. And I think in the French case, it's very difficult to find that something else once the king has gotten rid of. And, and that's a, a big part of why so many people try to hang on to the monarch for a while, try to find a way to build the monarch into this so that there can be some kind of peaceful transition. I don't think very many of the revolutionaries really wanted the revolution to be any kind of spiraling bloodbath mm. of the kind that it eventually becomes. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, even, even Payne talks about this. He mentions how it's very important um, when he's replying to Burke's um, reflections on the revolution in France, um, in the rights of man, I mean, Payne writes that it's not the issue of the, the, the monarch, it's, it's the hereditary despotism. So he distinguishes between personal despotism, which um, he claims that the English monarchs exhibited during the glorious revolution in 1688, which motivates the change of monarch. Um, take that as you will, that that's what he says. Um, and the French problem, which is not really about Louis XVI, but more about the hereditary principles that are, that are taking place there. Um, and yeah, you're, you're right. They, they do have a big hesitancy. Apart from the Jacobins, pretty much all the other um, French revolutionaries who write something um, really expressly attacked privilege. They attacked hereditary power. They attacked hereditary um, 
um, cl- clergy and nobility, but not the actual monarch itself. Um, and I think partially, like like I mentioned in the last episode, I think it's also a caution towards um, removing monarchies, because of course at this point it's still the the idea of executing and, and abolishing a monarchy is, is still very very rare and very new, and people are cautious of that. They're they're not quite sure whether they want to do that or not. Um, and that's why, of course, it does create so much chaos when it does happen. And this is also a big part of why, when we think of the history of nationalism in European thought, we associate it very heavily with the French Revolution. The nation, a concept mm. invoked heavily by Siez, is going to develop into nationalism in the years following the French Revolution, in large part because if you're going to get rid of all of the traditional mediating structures in your European state, you need some other concepts to work with on which to build a legitimation narrative. In a federal republic, you have the federated units to work with. But in a state which doesn't have federated units, it is much more likely that you're going to need to come up with some kind of story about how the state is more thickly united, right? And so this idea of a French nation, which has a kind of fixed essential essence, develops out of this. And then when it's copied by the Germans, by the Italians, you get these other kinds of nationalisms, which suppose that what unites the country is some sort of thick cultural identity, as opposed to, say, a particular monarch, right? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. It does come from that Siezian idea of the nation, because before this, everyone's still talking about sovereignty. CA really departs from that. He, he never really um, mentions sovereignty that much at all. Um, it's, and it's a common mistake to make that I, I've made in the, in, in the past as well, uh, of thinking that it is about sovereignty, but it's not. It's about the nation and it's about the general will. Those are the terms that he really works with in his theory. And that's what ultimately leads to, to nationalism. Yeah. Yeah. And so when people say that you know, Rousseau is some kind of progenitor of modern nationalism or modern totalitarianism, what I think they are getting at is that this idea of there being a general will, of there being a people which has a sufficiently united concrete essence that you can speak of it as having a unified will, mm. that premise leads to the idea of a nation with a concrete, thick essence. It is not expressed that way by Rousseau himself. I would, I would not even say that the way that Siez expresses the concept of the nation is identical with modern nationalism. But these are necessary steps to the concept of the nation that we eventually end up with. If you, yeah. if you look at Hobbes, you don't find that in Hobbes. Hobbes argues that, with that prior to the state, you have a fractious multitude where people are too different from each other for them mm-hmm. to possibly be united except through the artificial mechanism of the state. So the unity is something which the state brings about rather than something which gives rise to the state. And this is, I think, one of the big questions in political theory. And I think one of the big questions that it's easy for students to overlook. When a theorist is talking about how a state comes about, do they imagine that there's a united people and that that united people creates a state? Or are they saying a state exists and that state then crafts a people? Right? Mm, Which comes mm-hmm. first, the state or the people? If the people are coming first, you have a very different kind of political theory from the kind in which the state comes first. So I think one of the biggest differences between Hobbes and Rousseau is that for Hobbes, the state creates the unity. 
Yeah, yeah. And for Rousseau, the unity creates the state, mm-hmm. right? And this is this is something that we continue, I think, to have uh, as a major issue in our thinking, even if sometimes it's not explicit and it's beneath the surface. In the United States, a lot of the time we've thought of the country as a melting pot, as something that is being constantly created through a political project, right? That we created this American constitution and this American constitution is is bringing in to the United States all of these different people who have all of these different customs and beliefs and values and that those things are all coming together to make this ever-evolving American people, right? In Europe, it's much more often the case that it's thought of in the reverse of there being an ancestral primordial nation or primordial people, which has existed since time immemorial, which has a particular set of political institutions which belong to it, but which it, of course, could change if it wanted to, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the transatlantic issues. Now, of course, over the last 200 years, the European way of thinking about this has come to the United States, and the American <laughs> way of thinking about this has come to Europe. So it's not uh-huh. as if you can say one is essentially American and one is essentially European. These things both evolve out of the same corpus, the same tradition of political thought, uh, which includes both Hobbes and Rousseau on both sides. But it's interesting to see which has had more influence and which has gotten further in large part due to the institutions that you had to work with at the beginning of the 18th century. The difference between a federal system where you have multiple different states which already exist, which already have established a level of internal legitimacy, and a system like France where it's been centralized around a monarch. And so somehow you have to replace that with some other kind of unifying abstract concept. Yeah, and and I guess the, the the main reason why they don't go for, for the federal structure is because right from the get go, um, CAs throws that out the window. He really doesn't like it. That's one of the things that he straight away argues against because he believes that what it essentially makes is it splits the nation into lots of little small general wills, which then have to um, combat with each other to to figure out what to do. And he really really doesn't like that. Um, he already sees it as enough of a problem to have to use this representative structure to get somewhere. Um, so dividing that up even more um, for him is just something that he doesn't want to do. And that's why after that, even though there are a few mentions of, of federalism here and there, it's it's largely not really taken seriously in the French case. They're much more distracted, like you said, with the monarch problem, um, with uh, all the other transcendental Rousseauian con- concepts uh, that happen, with the amendment mechanism, with the constituting power mechanism um, and things like that. Yeah, and you can very much see in the American case, it was, it was, and it remains a very fraught question whether a federated republic is the way to go, because we have so much internal tension among our states, so much conflict between the states, which prevents our population from getting various kinds of things that it wants, and which mm. creates divisions internally within the country, which cause gridlock and cause the country to have a hard time responding to crises. We've been seeing that and living through it. We know in the United States that it's a difficult thing. The question is, can you avoid both of these sets of problems and have something which somehow gives you a higher level of cohesion and ability to dynamically make new decisions while at the same time giving you stability and order, right? 
The French are ultimately unable to get stability and order, but they do have a very dynamic system which enables more rapid change, right? In the American case, you end up with a system which very much thwarts change in the interests of preserving stability, right? So th- this question of kind of credibility versus dynamism or stability versus dynamism, being able to adapt, I, I don't want to say stability versus dynamism because I think dynamism contributes to stability mm. in the long run, right? But I'll, I'll go with, say, credibility or predictability, having an order which is credible or predictable where you broadly know what's going to happen, you can make predictions and you can plan your life, plan mm. uh, your, your uh, and plan the lives of institutions, of families, of businesses, of states, right? And on the other side, an emphasis on dynamism, on adapting, on changing, on being able to alter the way you make decisions to suit new conditions, right? A good political system has got to be able to be both dynamic and sufficiently credible. And if you overemphasize one of those at the expense of the other, it's going to hurt your stability in the long term because the system will either be too sclerotic or it will change too much to the point where it's impossible to have any kind of legitimation narrative. Mm. Now, at this point, and it's, it's a relatively late point to do this because we've really been having some fun, but <laughs> I feel we've kept Edmund out of this for entirely too long. And I think Edmund, I think Edmund has some thoughts. They may or may not have something to do with debt. (laughs) (laughs) Either way, I want to hear them. So Edmund, what have you been thinking about? Hmm. I think that one way in which I might uh, be able to link this conversation about the political theory of the French Revolution to... um, questions of the political economy of the uh, French Revolution, I think is through uh, um, CAS and his idea of um, representation, um, because a lot of people nowadays uh, interpret representation through the lens of the, the, the principal agent problem, the idea that you have a, um, a principal um, who might be uh, you know, often some kind of, um, you know, say, uh, an investor who uh, who um, uh, hires an an agent uh, such as a uh, such as a manager of investments um, as a representative of their interests uh, to do stuff that they don't necessarily have the time to do. And there are all sorts of um, principal uh, agent um, relations around um, what one is just between um, bosses and workers in a company. The um, workers are technically the agents uh, of the uh, of the principal, namely, namely the boss. Um, and then you have the shareholders of the company. Uh, for whom the the boss or, or or the CEO is the agent, and they are the principals, and so the uh, the uh, the principal um, will hire an agent to fulfil certain certain functions that the uh, principal 
doesn't necessarily have time to perform to fulfill their interests. And in return, the agent will, will, will get something, they'll get a salary, um, and the principal will often get, uh, often get profits. And so there's, I think, something, um, uh, th- th- there's already something uh, to do with political economy here. Um, and it kind of implies that uh, the whole uh, that the whole capitalist economy is founded on this kind of principal-agent relationship, uh, where the principles of the system, namely those who own production, hire workers who are the agents to fulfil their interests, which makes um, working people uh, seem like the tools of uh, the people who are. Uh, running the show, who own Marxist parlance, the means of production. Uh, and so applying the language of representation uh, to the economy uh, can, I think, yield a set of um, uneasy, uh, une- uneasy observations about how things, how things work. And I think CAS by no means uh, was unaware of this potential uh, Way of applying representation, uh, because for uh, for historian of political thought Michael Sinentia, for CAS uh, representation was at its heart something that was collected, um, connected intimately to political economy, and to uh, as CAS put it, the view of uh, the political community as a community of associates. CAS says. A society exists only among associates. As soon as citizens are no longer associates, they cease to be citizens. Uh, And CAS claims that, um, quote, citizens who pay taxes should be considered to be shareholders in the great social enterprise. They supply its capital. They are its masters. It is for their benefit that it exists and is able to act. It is they who will enjoy all its benefits. And a moment ago, I was suggesting how the idea of representation can have seemingly anti-democratic implications um, if the representatives uh, are uh, merely the 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 the, the, the uh, slaves of the represented, uh, and uh, the, uh, the and the representatives are in the majority. But of course, the kind of political representation. That CS is talking about means that you have a, a uh, you you would have a, a number of representatives for uh, for the whole political community, and he wants this to be founded on the third estate, which is in the majority, and therefore you know, representation to CAS is ha, ha, has this uh, has this more uh, kind of Republican edge to it. Um, but I think at the same time, it's not necessarily uh, these aren't necessarily separate ideas because uh, the third estate is, uh, in many ways, the foundation of the uh, the modern uh, the modern class structure. If the if the if the first and second estates of clergy and nobility no longer have much sway in the world politically or economically today, then the classes of the third estate, um, namely those who own own production and those who have to sell their labor to survive um you know these people comprise uh you know the the, the majority of the population pretty much everyone 
these days is either someone who has to sell their labour to survive or uh, someone who buys that labour in order to uh, generate profits for themselves. And I think that it seems that uh, uh, CS equally isn't entirely clear about uh, who he uh, necessarily wants to benefit from this. Um, But what he is clear about is that there should be a kind of free competition to ensure that uh, the privilege is dissolved. Um, he complains in his essay on privileges, quote, that privileged families will qualify themselves in such a degree as to exclude all competition on the part of the non-privileged. Uh, uh, and so CS claims that you know the, the, the argument for uh, against privilege is based on an argument for for competition. Uh, perhaps. <laughs> You could see this as an early argument for a kind of equality of opportunity, uh, for riding up the, uh, the, the 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 social ladder, which still exists, but just is what uh, um, what might be you know, framed as a kind of uh, meritocracy, where people rise according to their merit rather than according to privilege. Oh yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely an, an equality of opportunity thing. Um, uh- I mean, I have actually a really similar quote like that. Payne literally says, every age and generation must be as free to act for itself in all cases as the ages and generations which preceded it. The vanity and presumption of governing beyond the grave is the most ridiculous and insolent of all tyrannies. Um, so, yeah, very, very much that idea uh, of of each generation having that opportunity to compete. Um so that that privilege which active citizens for CAs have could could you know the, the demographics of that the people who are in that category could change um, over a lifetime over several generations. Hmm. Yeah. And I think, yeah, ch- talking about these problems of um, representation to bring in debt very briefly. Um, I think that in in France in the in 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 the eighteenth century, um, one kind of um, well, it's not necessarily a principal agent problem, uh, but it's not necessarily entirely different from it. Um, it is the way in which the, uh, the French government became dependent on private lenders in order to finance its war efforts, uh, which were. Uh, <laughs> Efforts that weren't uh, entirely successful, as uh, Thomas Sargent and Francois and Velda argue in Macroeconomic Features of the French Revolution, uh, you know, 60, from 1688 to 1788, Britain won uh, and France lost uh, three of uh, four wars. Uh, and France recurrently defaulted on its debt and Britain did not. But also, nevertheless, uh, France managed to uh, accumulate, the French monarchy managed to accumulate uh, uh, from its wars uh, an amount of debt that led to uh, great fears of, fears of bankruptcy in the, in, in, in the 1780s, uh, which led to the convention of the Estates General in order to find a way of raising taxes to meet the state's debt obligations. And of course, nobody wanted to pay any taxes. Uh, and uh, at first, it was the 
the third estate who was being asked for for taxes uh and then uh, and then things turned around and it became the uh, uh and it, and it became the uh, uh, first and second estates that were being asked to pay taxes but in the end because nobody wants to pay taxes after the revolution uh the government introduced the uh, assignat currency and you got a considerable amount of inflation in order to pay off the debts uh, and it was the uh, the jacobins who came along and imposed price controls on that inflation um but uh that didn't last too long and then after the jacobins you had another round of hyperinflation until uh, uh, uh until a debt default at the uh, towards the end of the 1790s um so i think there is a respect in which some people have argued that you know, there was a mistake made by the uh, by the uh, French government at the time in the 1780s, uh, perhaps caused by the debt uh, worries by uh, mm-hmm. Finance Minister Necker um, about uh, about the degree to which debt was a problem. Necker favoured uh, raising interest rates uh, to uh, uh, to raising taxes. Necker was also one of the uh, few people at the time who was quite strongly opposed to the uh, strongly opposed to the uh, American um, Revolution, and I think there's an extent to which uh, you know this is the case, uh, and 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 this article uh, certainly argues uh, that uh, as the authors put it, an unpleasant fiscal arithmetic gripped the old regime, uh, which basically means that uh, there, the degree to which debt was a problem was exaggerated, um, partly by um, um, someone like CAS, who was arguing that uh, uh, that if the debt problem was not managed, uh, then there was a risk uh, that... Uh, uh, quote, people who are our creditors would not be satisfied with despising us. England seeks to give us enemies wherever she can. She will inflame and combine resentment from every corner, and we will not have long to wait to find ourselves embroiled in the horrors of a war that will have to be funded without any credit, meaning with funds acquired at grossly usurious rates, after heavy loss of life to nobody's great concern, and after the ruin of part of the fortunes the bankruptcy seemed to have spared France, forced to sue for a shameful peace, would find herself in a new state of disorder with a new debt that usury would have raised to double the level of the enforced military expenditure. And a new debt would give rise to new taxes. Uh, So, uh, but at the same time, uh, this seems to be a bit of a position that CAS can't really fully get around because he says that you have to choose between default and taxing. And uh, he's claiming that uh, bankruptcy is a bad idea because it would lead to new taxes, but the alternative to that is taxes anyway. Um, and I think it does seem that in the end that the French Revolution was significantly exacerbated by the debt problem. Uh, at the same time, I don't think it's the only thing going on because you have this class thing. You have these, you have the rise of the third estate, and you know there are these kind of Marxist interpretations of the French Revolution, which say, "Oh, it was a bourgeois revolution," uh, or say, "Oh, look, it's just like the American Revolution; it's a tax revolt." And I guess, in many ways, it is. Nobody was willing to pay taxes to uh, to, to finance the debt and in, and payments on the debt, and so. Um, uh, and this led to uh, intensified the conflict between 
uh, between the different estates, uh, which were uh, you know uh, represented uh, politically, and uh, I think to this degree, there is a comparison I think to be made between the revolution of 1789 and the glorious revolution in Britain in 1688. The difference being that in Britain you had a kind of fairly quick res- resolution to the revolution, whereas in France the chaos went on for some time. Um, but I think the similarity is that in both contexts you needed some kind of political expression of the uh, of the social division. I think the difference is that in Britain, you know, you had this legacy of uh, parliamentarism which had gone for quite some time. Uh, whereas uh, the, the the French monarchy in the 18th century uh, didn't really, uh, uh, yeah, didn't really had that. You had regional parlement uh, for, uh, for 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 raising taxes, but you didn't have a, a kind of national system of representation, which is perhaps why these debates about representation were so were so strong in France, because the French monarchy was uh, was so powerful uh, and. So I think there's a degree to which the the sociological tendencies that we see in France aren't entirely different than the sociological tendencies we see elsewhere. Uh, you've got the rise of kind of commercial society and trade leading to uh, kind of an, these new uh, industrial and financial interests uh, that leads to the eventual emergence of of the capitalist economy, uh, but uh, the uh, the difference is that in uh, is perhaps a more of a political difference, uh, and so in, in that sense that the arguments that go on about the French Revolution it's uh, it's caused by it's caused by class struggle, and the argument well it's caused by uh, the political institutions of France really are just two sides of the same coin. Uh, I think what's perhaps more interesting is the, the particular trends at play, um, uh, which is. Uh, I think, on the one hand, you know, the emergence of commercial society and trade, leading to uh, an intensification of the class struggle anyway, with the rise of the third estate, plus the role of debt, which I think wasn't necessarily the foundational cause there, but I think uh, seemed to have intensified the struggle. I think, in general, that's what debt seems to do. Debt doesn't necessarily cause. Uh, I kind of referred to in previous episodes as the cycle of war and trade, uh, but I think debt does, in a way, lubricate the wheel of the cycle of uh, of war and trade because uh, in in times of war, states uh, states raise funds often by borrowing. This creates debts that uh, that rulers are faced with in peacetime. And the attempts to pay these debts off um, by raising taxes intensify social conflicts, which leads to a return to warfare. Well, in this and, way, and what yeah. tends to happen, right? You have this um, this relationship where the person who lends money to the government is thinking of themselves as similar to the person who buys stock in a company, and who wants the bondholder wants the government to answer to them in the same way that the stockholder wants the company to answer to them and wants, therefore, the government to represent the interests of the bondholders, right? Mm. And in some cases, we have this explicit argument made that the people who contribute revenue 
the people who contribute funds to the state are the people to whom the state owes duties. Now, if you have a state which is heavily engaged in debt, then it's not going to be the taxpayer, but the bondholder that the state potentially will be asked to answer to. And I think the point mm. you make about war and trade can be made a slightly more precise with this little addition, which is that what war does is it causes states to spend far more than they can possibly raise in revenue, right? And then that means that they become indebted to bondholders who during the time of the peace will then wish to contort the state's policy to service their interests, mm. right? And in exchange for continuing to indulge the state in its long, lengthy paying of the debt, those bondholders will make various kinds of political demands. So the bondholders, in lieu of being repaid in funds, will be repaid in political influence. Mm. Yeah. And I think, mm. I think that's a big part of what the trouble is with debt, because if your debt is going to be handled preponderantly through bondholders, then the only way to get out from under those bondholders is to somehow manage the debt without having to have recourse to them, which means either taxation or money printing. Mm. That's really all you can do unless you're going to continue to defer to the bondholder. Yeah, yeah. And I, mm. I think Francis, I mean, Ed, Edmund, I, I do definitely think that Francis' public debt plays a big role. I mean, um, the, there's a very, there, there is a significant debate at the very start where the Third Assembly meets and they have a debate over whether they should actually repudiate the debt or not and several people want to just completely repudiate it because oh you know it's the monarch's fault it's the nobility you know they've been fighting the wars they've been doing all these horrible things it's not the third estate's fault why, why should they meddle in that why should they be responsible but ca draws the line and he says no 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 guys we need to take on the royal debt we need to make it our debt because managing france's finances and taxation system is what will give legitimacy to the third estate. If the third estate is going to have governmental power, political power, it needs to take on that responsibility. And at the same time, the other reason is also potentially because at this point, um, there's a real fear um, that if, if the debt is repudiated, then the monarch's reliance on the nobility, like Benjamin was saying, on the bondholders, so to say, um, is completely removed. And there's the Humean idea at this point um, in that century where repudiating debt means that the king's reliance on the nobility is removed, allowing the king to raise new taxes to get an army and essentially create a military despotism, um, which will essentially just mess everything up. And Hume speculates whether this will happen first in France or England. Um, and essentially, whichever one of these is going to do it is the one that is going to lose an ensuing war between these two powers at the time. Of course, ironically, the French Revolution decapitates the nobility anyway um, and takes on the royal debt. So it doesn't solve well, the problem. Andrew, this is in part because the French government does not preponderantly owe money to the nobility, but to the wealthy members of the bourgeoisie. Yeah. Mm. Right. Uh, so yeah. that's that's a big part of it, because the debt is not in France preponderantly owed to nobles, because nobles at this point, while they continue to have honors and titles and, and property, they do not enjoy the level of wealth which the increasingly super rich merchants have, mm. merchants and industrialists. Th this rising group of people increasingly does the bond purchasing. 
and they are especially resentful because they're funding the government and they are not even given the same political status as priests or nobles. Yeah, yeah. Right? Let alone mm-hmm. the further influence they think they are due as the people who primarily fund the state. Mm. And, and that that's is a big also, part of the yeah. resentment that they feel. Yeah. And that's also, I think, where Sieta's active-passive distinction come from. I mean, why, you know, why, it's it's an argument to be made that CAs only wanted the types of citizens who were, quote-unquote, fiscally responsible in paying their taxes to have political influence because he really, really wants that debt to be repaid. It never happens because through the chaos of the revolution, like Edmund said, the debt never does get repaid um, properly. Um, and so... Yeah, but it's it's a reasonable motivation that CA's um, active-passive distinction isn't necessarily of his official reason. His official reason for it is in is almost an Aristotelian argument, and the fact that he's arguing that those who have private property, by extension, have the necessary leisure time to participate in politics because they have the time to gather the relevant education and knowledge. Maybe that's just um, maybe that's just a facade um, for him wanting more fiscally responsible people. Um, to actually pay taxes. <laughs> You're dealing with a number of different possible lenders, right? So in addition to the domestic French bourgeoisie who lends money to the French state, you also have foreign states which lend money to the French state and merchants and, and financiers from other states who lend money to the French state. Now, one of the things that you also have to worry about if you're a French revolutionary thinker is how are these other states in your neighborhood going to respond to the revolution. Mm, And if you repudiate debts, debts which cross territorial boundaries, then the financiers in these other states who you are saying you will not repay will have a big stake in getting a government installed which will repay. Like the Iron Bank of Bravos. Well, and you see this all the time today. If a small country tries to default on its debt, tries to get out of having to repay wealthy financiers, then those financiers will often agitate for regime change in that country so that they can get repaid. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the risks of defaulting is while you may be able to catch and, and put a stop to all of the rebellious activity that the creditors who live in the territory of the country might get up to, you certainly are not going to be able to put a stop to all of the troubling activity of creditors who live outside the territorial boundaries of the state, right? Mm. And so in our more globalized world, where very often the creditors do not live within the territory of the state, it's very difficult to default on debt without those creditors using their connections and influence abroad to get some kind of international political response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And of course, ironically, um, France still gets military despotism anyway. So, yeah. Yeah. So, no, as you- Not to be underrated. That, that is very important here in, in motivating things. So I think we've, we've had a pretty good run through the French Revolution here. We've talked about a little bit about equality, quite a bit about representation, quite a bit about debt. I think that Edmund's debt and the way that debt connects to representation through this idea that if you are the bondholder, if you are the lender, then the one that you are lending money to is in some way your agent that you've bought them, that they owe you, Mm. right? Uh, 
I think in that way, debt and the question of representation can be meaningfully connected. And I think also Edmund is right to point out that class struggle and political institutions come together. And the kind mm-hmm. of political institutions you have heavily influence the forms in which uh, the forms which class struggle can take. So you know, we discuss this in terms of how is it different in France versus Britain, but also uh, how it was different in France versus America. And the point had been made about Parliament in, in Britain being already this mediating institution, which because it came about relatively early in British history, was able to prevent the level of absolutism that we end up seeing under the Bourbons in France. Uh, these political institutional variations are so critical in the way that particular kinds of struggles and conflicts unfold. Even if you have many of the same driving issues at play in lots of different contexts, the particular form of the political institutions will mediate the responses to those problems and questions. And they can give you wildly different answers. And I think a lot of the time when people see different things happening, they're assuming there must be different root causes. But you can have the same root causes and have things go very differently depending on what mediating institutions or circumstances are there. Hmm. Yeah. 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 So I think we've touched on a number of different things. We, I'm hoping, are going to do a, another episode with Andrew that focuses on representation, especially in contemporary context, more recent theories of representation, how the concept has developed after the French Revolution and, and moving forward. So hopefully we'll get Andrew back one more time for that. Uh, and in the meantime, well, we hope you have a really wonderful rest of the day. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye-bye. Yep, thank you so much for having me again. Thanks, Andrew. And thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.